This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. No introduction to this group. Everybody knows what an outsized role he played in Kali Yisrael and in the Shishiva. Get, they get to hear about you in, the, in our Shmuz almost every week. So, um, and we appreciate very, very much that in between stops at the largest Yeshivas in the world, he decided to come to the most important Yeshiva in his circular, and that is uh, Mahon Yaakov. See, with great appreciation. Sam, you ready? We're rolling. Okay. okay. The guys put in a lot of questions. So, first of all, um, I may go to many yeshivas, but only to one mechon. So that, that's, that's one. Two, I walked in and noticed a gniza, which means people use this farm and wear them out. That's a very good simon. A full gniza box either means people don't go through the trouble of taking it away, or guys really, really crack the books. And finally, I, like always, I need to mention somebody who's not here. Um, Rematsya Rosenblum was for a very long time part of yeshiva. I own tremendous Akar Satov. I met him, I, I know him from way back when, when he started becoming interested in learning in Yiddishkeit. Someone set up a Chavrusa, we learned Babakama, and, we, and we kept a Kesher, and then many years ago, I, on a chance, um, I met him in Bet Shemesh and we talked, and then he, he heard, I had some recordings, and he and at that time, everything was these little cassette tapes. I'm not a terribly organized person, so I just got him a bunch. And he told me that if I promise to get him everything I have, he will put it in order. And he explained to me, you can record it online, and you don't have to have a whole house full of uh, cassettes. He put in an extraordinary amount of work, very organized, meticulous, hounded me mercilessly that this is out of order and that's not quite, and I'm missing something and so on. And, and, it, and it, it, it was a tremendous bracha for me. His passing was untimely. It was untimely because Jehovah took him when he's, when he's supposed to take him, but I'll, I'll, I, I, his, the Akkaras that over to him is, is boundless. He really helped structure things and what's missing, what's needed, and what should be filled in. So I, I can't not remember him uh, being here. Yeah. Okay, question number one. Um, how does one bring the seichel of their belief in God and Judaism down into emotional amuna? So, it's fascinating. I was just talking about it to a group at amuna, and maybe I'll, 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 um, we'll, we'll, I'll repeat a point or two. Um, we need to understand people have different senses. So, for instance, um, seeing is one sense, hearing is another one. They complement each other. They can, they can kind of replace each other, but not totally. So a blind man can hear and make out sounds in incredible ways, very focused, but he doesn't get what seeing gives. So you have complementary senses and so on. When we talk about knowing things, understanding things, in Hebrew, there is really two types of knowledge and understanding. One I would call Haskalah. I'm just kind of using a phrase that would fit, um, which is logic, seichel, understanding. And there's something called Hakara, which means recognition. And the best example of where you would see a difference is in facial recognition. If you see somebody, it, 25 years later, a person's hair is white and it's kind of aged or something. You may not recognize the first instance, but as soon as you talk to her, hey, I know you. You're so-and-so. How do you recognize him? Different color hair, more creases, um, or what, whatever. I just recognize it. And, and no matter how much I could push a person to the wall, it just, it's just him. Um, machines recognize people. But very differently, they'll count, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll measure the angle between your nose and your face and the eye and so on and so forth. It's a lot more exact than we can do, but it's limited. So that's why when they have all of these, seeing if it's a real person, they'll take uh, an eight and put the eight, contort the eight to a point where no machine can identify any two points that 
are that that in any way fit the algorithm for what an eight looks like. And and almost every human being will say, yeah, it's an eight, a, a, a nutty eight, but it's an eight. How'd you recognize that? Well, don't you see? Uh, and and the answer is, it's a different sense. Um, you, you, you know, uh, 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 um, um, somebody goes by the books. You'll, you'll see somebody with an impeccable resume. That, wow, this is exactly, he, every box checks off to the nth degree, should be hired. You meet the person. I don't know, there's something about him that I don't like. I, I can't explain what it is in sense. So, some intuitive sense, some sense of recognition. There are some people who, who have a certain type of memory, they look at a map and say, yeah, Ibn Danan, 200 feet up, feeds into this street, take it up and Another person will say, I'm not good at that, but you keep walking, about now there should be a turnoff. So those are two different types of senses that deal with it. Regarding HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we have logic that guides us but it doesn't connect us. The Kuzari um, is one who elaborates about the Kuzari is a dialogue between the King Akazars, which was a tribe that converted to Judaism, 4th century, 5th century, 6th century, something along those lines. Some people doubted if it was, but there was, there was a story like that. Rabbi Huda Levi used it as a backdrop for a, um, a uh, projected dialogue, it was a platform to help explain the basics of Yiddishkeit. And he, the king asks him, what's the difference between the name of Elohim and the name of yud hey vav hey Havaya? Um, and he explains it, that Elohim is God in the logical sense that you must fill in that blank in creation. Nothing can create itself, everything has to come from somewhere, rules, laws of nature, things like that don't just pop up, and you can use many logical arguments to come to a conclusion there's some root force that supersedes and is a root for everything else. That's Elohim, it's as far as it gets you. It's the God of Aristotle, that's how he described him. It's the first step. That's everyone's first step. At that point, Aristotle takes leave. And that's it. It doesn't get him any more than a philosophical explanation of that there is a beyond with certain... It's like scientists say dark matter. They have no idea what it is. But its properties are such that it affects everything in a certain way. That's about as far as we can go. Avram Avinu took that all the way. At that junction, Hashem appeared to him, to Avram, and he told him, Lech Lecha. That's Havaya. It's the difference between a logical construct to an, an a, a, a imminent um, connection. And the difference is Shemayim Varetz. The difference is, 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 is as far as can be. The God of Aristotle demands nothing from us. It does not obligate us to act differently, to be different. We don't believe the God of Aristotle has no idea if that, if that, if, if Aristotle has no idea if his God knows what's going on or particularly cares what's going on. He actually thinks he doesn't. And therefore, it's just a nice thing to discuss over a table. Um, you know, when you're not busy calling from the sea to, to the, from the river to the sea, you can talk about this as well. That's it. The God of Avram is a God that a person is willing to go all out and sacrifice himself and his son because I have a personal connection. So the world of Torah and mitzvahs builds a connection. Now, I want to explain a minute how the relationship goes between the two. I can't just use that second God, because every other religion demands forget your logic, forget any thinking, just believe. So then again, I'm stuck. Which one of them is? I have no 
why is this person a fantasizer? Is, is this just a bunch of stories? So logic guides us and helps us understand why this is where I should be looking. But to feel the connection and the existence of the other, tefillah is an interaction. Torah is a certain connection. Mitzvah is a certain connection. So the two together are what gives us the connection that's called emunah. Richard, what, uh, what does betachan look like for big life decisions like choosing between careers, whether or not to marry such uh, some particular person, what community to live in, whether or not to stay in yeshiva in Israel after October 7th, whether to come back for a second year, throw that in there. <laughs> Tips for improving decision making in these areas and how to think about it in the light of betachan. Um, so I think this way maybe. Um, Bitochen is an understanding, first and foremost, that everything that we're doing is a process that involves Hashem. And therefore, the challenges we have are meant to challenge us. We're meant to use whatever abilities He gave us to make that decision. So we use our Seichel. If the question comes up for a second year, we ask Rabbi Jacob. That's, it's a resource that Kashbrochu gave us to figure out if we should come back a second year or not. A very, very good resource. Um, and so on. So, yes, we do it. But the understanding that once we've done what we need to do, then we we're happy, we're comfortable. We're not the ones that assure the result. So if somebody has a shidduch question, I use as much as I can my seichel, I ask people, I um, daven, and when I make my decision, I say, I did my share. This is, this is, uh, this is what I've done. The idea that, ah, oh, if I would have done it different, so if I made a mistake, if I did wrong, I was lazy, I didn't do right, I allowed myself to, to, to be misled by something I knew I shouldn't and so on. So then I need to criticize myself and say, how do I you know, improve later? But the idea that if I did what I'm supposed to do, it doesn't work out the way, then, then that's where the test of Bitochen comes in. The, the, um, the of Zavavah speaks a lot about the tranquility of someone who has Bitochen. It's not a sales pitch, because that's a vicious cycle. Of course, if I believe everything's for the good, I'll be tranquil. But how do I know it's for the good? I'm, I'm, that's where my unrest is. Maybe it's not for the good. The answer is, he's, 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 I think he's more specifically defining the temperament of what is Bitochen. Bitochen is HaKadosh Baruch who gives us a lot of chances, a lot of challenges. Will you do whatever we can? As long as we have to do it, we put in every effort into it. When that's finished, I did my share. And if it didn't come out, that's what Hashem wanted. And if it didn't come out, Hashem wanted. And, 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 and that's how I feel about it. So it's a partnership. Me, like it says in the Pasuk, um, a person prepares his heart, and the words are put into our mouth by Kodesh Baruch Hu. So that's, a, that's the way we work. It's a, it's a partnership. It's challenging. A lot of times we really are not sure. But at least understanding the framework, the Bitochen comes in, not that I won't do, and, and, and not that I should have done, but I do what is necessary, what, I, what, what we think is necessary at this time, and then results come from our Kaddish Baruch Hu. What's the difference between a Rebbe and a Rav? What criteria should these people meet? Do you have practical tips for finding a Rav and a Rebbe? So let's explain, I mean, theoretically it would be the same, but let's explain some very practical difference. Um, a Rebbe is someone you chose on the basis of learning. I'm sure all of you people scoured the internet for all possible yeshivas and looking at everything, you figured Mechon Yaakov's hands down the best and that's why you came to learn forever Jacob. I mean, that's basically, I'm being a little cutesy, but at the end of the day, a Bacha chose a yeshiva because he liked the derech and he liked the Rebbeim, or he heard about Rebbeim, and he's coming, and this is where he's coming to. Which sets up a relationship of, I'm here to learn from you, I made a decision, and 
if it's not going well, I move on to another yeshiva and so on. So it enhances in a certain way the, the relationship and so on. When a person looks for a rav in a community, the first thing is, where's my job? What are my wife's limitations in terms of her family, my family, where, which areas can we live in? Where can we afford a house, if we can? And what's the closest shul that's within walking distance? So now, I'm down to something where the Rav is not the Rav, he's a wonderful person, but I don't feel the connection, I don't think he understands me, which is a problem. It's a challenge, everyone in the community, not only for people of Ali Tshuva, it's, 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 it's a cross-the-board challenge because the criteria for who is your Rav depends on so many other factors other than the people who may choose the Rav may not be the people that, that are like you or, 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 or your type in any way. It's a challenge. On the other hand, um, as life moves on, a, a rub becomes a more critical piece. It, it's helpful to identify the communities in the States, if that's where you plan to live on, in, where the community is the type of community where the rub is likely to be someone that you can click with. And within, a, it should be one, two things, two or three things should govern your choice of community. One is the type of people a lot more important than type of houses are the type of people. We live, if you're, if you're secular, you have your own house, you live with yourself, and you meet people at a restaurant. When you're from, you live in your house with the community, and kids come to play with each other. It's a very different setup. And if you, you don't fit in, it's not your type, for whatever reason, it, it's, it's very difficult to live like that. So generally speaking, if the community is compatible, you feel you fit in, the type of rub they'll choose will probably be also somebody compatible. But, but it's very important, the community, the type of yeshivas around the area, and the type of, of uh, shul rabbanim figures are, are very important. There are two extremes I want to, again, caution about. One extreme is a town so small where there's only one community. It's amazing if you fit in. It's, it's impossible if you don't fit in. There's only one rub and that's it. So uh, halachically, it gives them a tremendous um, ability to, to sort of impose the hakan and so on. The flip side is a city with a thousand communities. A city with a thousand communities has no community. It, it's basically a place where you can, where you pick up a mincha with the pizza together. So, you know, that, that's, that's about it. There's no sense of belonging, no sense of responsibility, no sense of acknowledgement. It's one of the, the very difficult things about New York. So finding an area that's large enough to give a certain diversity and small enough to give a sense of um, belonging and obligation and opportunity, communal-wise, is a very important factor. Silver Spring meets all those criteria, and you're all welcome to, to apply. Yeah, right of Amchaim, where's Amchaim? Yes, okay. What do you think is a healthy balance of secular and Jewish education from early childhood through early adulthood? So it'll depend a lot, obviously, in the community you live in. You, you, you don't have an infinite amount of schools. It's not a dial where you can decide how much. But I, I want to I explain the critical piece. They're not partners. There is no partner to Torah. Torah is, Hashem, put me in this world for a reason. What are my moral obligations? Part of the package of things are understanding the world around. There are different opinions, perspectives about how much, ranging from everything to nothing. You've got to, from zero to, to, to infinity, you've got everything. But the point is, what, the one thing many valid cheetahs accept that they're equally important. I, I grew up in a school that I guess was bipolar. I guess for the better word, it was, it, it was, a, it was a school in those days, the, the Jewish education sort of was beginning to gel. So the school had a Limited Kodesh department, a, a, a Hebrew department, run by European Rebbeim of the old school. It had a general studies department run by Apikarsim, who really thought this antiquated old, and no, no, no overarching um, administration. 
It was incredible. You, you learned one thing in the morning, one thing in the afternoon, and it was like two different worlds. I, I look back now and I, I just scratch it, and then you had a board that was interested in neither of them. So, so it, was, it, was, it, was, it was an amazing setup. It prepares you for life in a corporation, really in an amazing way. It's a, it's a very good uh, training. So we had a teacher, he was Christian, Sanquois, his name was. He had served the UN in Lebanon, actually. He was a French teacher and English teacher. He was a very nice person, actually. And, and he stayed away like the plague from any discussion about religion. I think they, I think they had that general idea. The, the Jews tended to, to, to argue about religion. The, the non-Jewish teachers were very respectful. And was, so at some point, though, he asked the kids, I don't get it. If you're so religious, why do you have material aspirations or, or, or drives or something like that? And he is very, it was a respectful conversation. It wasn't, normally, he would shy away from conversations. So the kids were thinking, and one kid came up with the answer that sort of reflected education. He said, well, we're taught we're supposed to have two goals in life, a material and a religious, and a spiritual, a material and a spiritual goal in life. Um, in the parlance of, of, of I guess, uh, Halacha or whatever it would be called shituf, worshiping dual god. That's basically what it what it is. And and so a person there was like Shafal Hirsch who felt very positive about many different types of general education as being very helpful, very useful, and so on, to people that 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 felt almost nothing. It's a decision you have to make based on the schools you see. But the one thing you want to make sure is that the kids understand the primacy of learning. That being a Ben Torah and being a Torah person, first and foremost, is who you are. General study is what you study. It's not who you are. And then you have to get a feel for how much are the kids interested in learning. And, and I, I want to explain something. It requires a preponderance. It requires a, a certain skewed emphasis on learning, because learning is hard, especially for a young teenager who is um, you know, struggling with teenage stuff. And if there's no strong drive to learn and accomplish, that's one of the reasons why the more modern Orthodox schools have been struggling with it. When a kid says basketball is important, SATs are important, learning is important, Israel is important, Learning is always the last because it's the hardest, least prominent in a certain sense, and it requires a lot of all-out understanding that this is really what life's about. So you want a place that the Ruach is, Torah is first and foremost and is the essence, and then there are different ways that you complement it, and there's so many different ways to, to, to do it. You look at the schools, look at what the kids look like, how interested are they in learning, how much do they look like a mentorah, how much are they? And based on that, you, you find the arrangement that, 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 you, that you end up as being your world. Uh, are there halachas or, or heterim given that allow for someone to intentionally avoid or partially complete or only partially complete certain mitzvot on the path to observance for the sake of a Balchuva's sustainable growth? So I, I don't know what the word heter is the right word for it, but the point is, um, it's a process. All or nothing on a practical level just about doesn't work. Very few people can jump the whole, the whole distance in one fell swoop, and, and, and sometimes it's problematic. What we're saying is, it's not a heter not to do, but the right way forward is to start with things that you can do, slowly build yourself until you become that. So I, I don't think the right word is a heter. It's the other way around. You're looking for the pathway forward. And you start with one and another and another, you know, depending on the circumstances, what, what fits in easier, what's more central, and, and you work that way. So I, I would rephrase it because I think it's important the way you understand it. Which, which sections of Torah are metaphorical and which are literal, and what are the ways we can know if something is metaphorical or literal? So, the Rishonim, Avanezra, and, and others, many of them, make a point that in the Torah, Torah Shebek Sav, we have to understand each Pasuk as being literal. 
Um, I forgot who says this, the Ikri maybe says it. It's, he says it in the word, Eidos Hashem Nemana, Torah Shebeksav, the written Torah, is, is, um, is testimony. So he says, testimony, if a witness comes in and says, we saw Reuven killing Shimon. And then Toyota comes along and says, no, it's not true, we were there, they, they weren't killing him. And say, well, we didn't mean kill literally. We meant he insulted him deeply, and assaulting is like killing. No way, Bezna accepts that. Um, a test of the world would grind to a halt if everybody could take back what they said and re-explain it. It, it would look like politics. Everybody would constantly be reinterpreting what they said yesterday to fit with tomorrow. Now, you, you, can't, you can't really have a very, a very good world with that. Um, so, Torah Shebeksav, except for the places that are clearly an idiom. For instance, Orla Salev. It, it, it says that Kaddish Baruch Hu will circumcise the foreskin off the heart. There's no such thing as a foreskin on the heart. And it clearly means a certain emotional hardness, things of that nature. But to say that Avram is not a true person who lived, but it's just a, a, a kind of mythical um, amalgamate of Jewish forefathers is a bigorsis. If you can say that, then all of Torah goes out the window. If you can reinterpret everything, you know, one person has a problem with did Avram Vina live or not, he's a historian. The other person says, stealing doesn't mean just taking money from people. It means if they deserve the money, but the wealthy exploiters don't deserve the money. So that's not stealing, that's doing a mitzvah tzedakah. You know, everyone has the mitzvahs that he would reinterpret. So that has to be absolute. In Nov, in Tanakh, the, nev- the Nevoah dealing with Hashem. Where, where a prophet saw Hashem on a horse, uh, uh, you know, on, on top of the chair, there's something that's, all of that, by definition, since Hashem has no form and no picture and anything like that, these must be allegorical, or metaphors in the sense, they're a marshal for something. In, in, in Gemara, in Agadata, where the, in the Medrash, there's, everyone says some are literal, some are metaphor. Which is which? There are disagreements. Various, in various medrashim, some places it says 100%, and, and, and some interpret most of them. But I, wanna, I want to um, explain one point. The morale explains many, many chazal, many agadas, as being a metaphor. Now, the morale from my base marriage, where I come from, was considered to be the primary interpreter of Agada and Medrash. His point is always how excruciatingly exact they are with the metaphor. Meaning as follows. If I tell you I could hear the trees whispering and saying Kedusha, it might be a poetic way of describing something. But, but if someone will say, well, I didn't see a minion of trees here, and you can't say Kedusha without a minion, so how could the trees be saying Kedusha? You would say, save us for Purim. That's, I mean, it's not, that's not like, I mean, come on. But Chazal, the excruciating detail that they use in Agada, is meant to reflect very, very specific ideas and concepts. And the morale, he'll never leave a Medrash untouched. If, if he mentions it, he'll explain every detail. Why this person says like this? Why this person that? And his point again and again, he says, these are not kind of sweeping generalizations and, and kind of metaphors. They're very excruciatingly specific. That's the point that Amral makes all the time. And that's the base message I grew up in, in, in the terms of the world of Agada. So there are different opinions, but again, that my, my, my personal sense is, is that. What are the hardest areas in Judaism for you to reconcile? With what? <laughs> no, like, like, like. Uh, um, so, the, 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 obviously, the parts of Yiddishkeit that. So let's give. It, let's take an example. The reason why the Akeda is seen as being the ultimate test is because 
um, it not only meant that his most precious being, um, his son that he had after so many years and yearned for all his life, and his legacy is being sacrificed without, you know, he's back to square one again, and, and everything that comes with it, but a much, much, much more deeper conflict was, this goes against the grain of everything that Yiddishkeit inculcated with me. Rachmim and Chesed and Tov and all of that. And when I'm called to, 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 to do away with that, then it's not only that it's an emotional suffering, then where am I? Who am I? Was my life a waste? Is, is this, it, what, what am I doing now? That was the greatest test. And on that, the Pasuk said, I now recognize that you not only followed Yiddishkeit because it resonated with you and your neshama, you followed it because at some point you realized, I don't understand it all. So in the areas where there is a certain um, human difficulty, if somebody has um, issues, where it really means that their life is going to be a very difficult life if they need to follow lacha, I would say that that is the most emotionally challenging part. And we hope killing a malik, you know, in recognizing what's right and yet understanding that for a normal person it, it is a struggle, it is appropriate. Um, if a person feels it wouldn't be a struggle to do it, either he's not honest himself, or there's something wrong with him. It should be a struggle. And it should be only because I know that my own sense of right and wrong stops someplace. And from that point onwards, it's Hashem. So, so the situations where people are going to have to really have tremendous yesurim because of the following halacha, those are difficult, those are difficult places. And you, you understand with your mind that it's right, but very few people can claim they're not from Avinu. Um, and if you're honest with yourself, you say, this is a struggle. And Bez Hashem, I should do what's right. What do you think are the biggest issues facing the Jewish community? <laughs> There's so many of them. <laughs> um, <coughs> I would say, I mean, there's a lot. There are a lot of things that, that, that challenges. I, I would say, almost counterintuitively, <laughs> it's the first time that we do have breathing space with all the troubles we've seen and, and heard. Tremendous opportunity, a tremendous growth of Judaism, tremendous growth of Torah Judaism. I mean, Blair and Hara, the extraordinary growth of, of population and people and so on, being able to act effectively as a klal, as opposed to just individuals, is, is challenging. We're not used to having organized mega communal life. And we're very good at having a shtibl. We run shtibl amazingly well. When you try to translate running a shtibl, what is a shtibl? So there's a synagogue like the great synagogue that's a nice building with a, a big board and, and, and a whole bunch of people taking care of things, and you're this in charge, this is in charge, that, and the other thing with bylaws, and the whole nine yards. And then there's somebody who, who got a storefront, put up a sign that, you know, this is the, uh, our local shtibel, and, um, and he basically um, invited people into Dublin. In, in New York, this was very common. It, 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 the, the synagogues were big and heavy and also, you know, and they kind of, so any group of people that came, small group of people, in those days, there were two dozen Bav Chassidim, they hired a storefront, they put up a sign, Bav of Shtibel, and it ran like a Shtibel. It means no bylaws, um, no board, um, a one person does everything, everyone else complains, and you know, and, it, and it's a kind of, uh, it, 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 it has, it's warm, it's personal, and it's, it's kind of uh, pandemonium, and it's, and it's very positive. And it is, 
and, and having a board with the ceremony with bylaws for, for, for 20, 30 people in, in a storefront is, is ludicrous. But when this community grows and they become 500 people and you still run it the same way, it, it, it's, it's chaos in a way that disintegrates. We, we haven't transitioned well enough. There's no such thing today in, in the firm world where somebody wants, comes into a place and wants service. He always wants to see the head of the organization only. I'm not, you know, I, I want the chief doctor at a hospital. So that's the attitude. And he, and, and, you know, and he has time for everybody and, and, and can see everybody and, and can keep the records in his back pocket. It's a type of thing that we've gotten used to because that's how life was. And today, at Israel, or even New York, when you have a Satma community, when I came, when I remember it, it was a big room full of people. Today, it's 35,000 people there in Hara. You can't run it that way. And we have no Masoris of running a, a larger club. And it's a, a something that, that has been hindering us for developing effective, organized communal life. I think it's one of the challenges. Any other major challenges, uh, materialism or...? So in terms of materialism, I, I, would, I would add something. It's more that people... It, it used to be, across the board, not only from, from people, but across the board, working and earning were considered the sort of the, 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 the focus of life. If you'll go to school, do well in school, you get a good job in, a, in an honorable profession, work your way up, get a salary that's commensurate, be able to afford the things you can afford, and so on. Kids would work all summer um, to, uh, to, to put together money and get, get themselves the bicycle they always wanted to get. There was a sense of achievement, accomplishment, um, and satisfaction, and, and, you know, and appreciation. When you worked all summer for a bike, the bike didn't end up parked somewhere that you forgot where. It, you, you took care of it because it's you and it's yours. And that really is the basis for our understanding of the world, Akash Baruch in person. He put us in this world because we are Bechira, which means we can earn our way to becoming the person that we ought to become. That whole mindset has switched. And people grow up with a sense of using credit card, getting stuff. Um, it, it, you don't want people to feel left out, so everybody is doing okay and nobody's doing better. A lot of things like that. And it's an underpinning of Yiddishkeit to want to work, achieve, attain, excel. And, and, and even the, in the very religious um, population, it's also very different than it used to be, and I think it affects a lot of that. So it's not the materialism per se, as much as that whole perspective of Yegiyas Kapecha. If a person lives with working hard and earning, I can translate it. I can say, remember in the summer how you worked hard and you earned money and you bought a bicycle and you're so happy? Yes. Well, there's another world. Roll up your sleeves, work hard, finish a masechta, know it well, and for eternity you have that masechta. So what I did was I translated, I translated um, the, the desire and the appreciation for achievement and physically to ruchnias. But if he doesn't have that emotional thing over here, so I tell him, yes, Olam Haba is that. He says, great, which curl can I sponsor so that I get the Olam Haba? That's what it, I, I don't need to roll up my sleeves and work. I just need to sponsor a colo. So, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's something that's become, we don't appreciate how, how much it becomes part of you if you work hard and achieve. It's, you can buy into everything and, and, and not get that, that you get kapecha. I think that that's an emotional and, and um, it, it's, it's an emotional attitudinal um, challenge for us. How would you suggest someone relate to or guide their child who identifies as gay? I mean, you're a bit off from, but you know, you have children in med it'll, it'll take a while. Um, so in general, um, it, it's a broad topic. 
and it's it's a challenging topic. I'll, I'll, I'll make a broad statement to, I think, from talking to people, from having experience seeing, there's a world of, the, the, the real issue has become where, two things, people created boxes. I believe even statistically, a, a lot of people can have inclinations to both sexes. And the idea that you box people in, and therefore I'm this or that, creates a crisis. So the day a boy feels attracted to a boy, I am gay. No, you're attracted. Um, most people can be attracted either way. I think the statistics bear it out very strongly. Um, that's one. Two, the idea that it's an identity, that this is who I am, it's like it always, it always um, creates, I mean, when people say, I'm a steak and potatoes type of person. I sure hope that's not how you identify. I, I sure hope there's more to you than, a, yes, you may like steak and potatoes, but you're not the type of guy. Sex, sexual attraction is an important piece of life. It's not who you are. And if you, if, if you have a very strong drive or weak drive, it doesn't define you. A person is Salmo Lakim, and a person is the part of himself which relates to Ruchnius. He needs to express it and to engage in the world and bring it out. So just like appetite is, is one arena, um, a, a living family life is another arena. There are mitzvahs, there are various, and so on. But, but the reason why it creates such a crisis, nobody has a crisis if, if you go to a doctor and he tells you, Mr., you got to lose 40 pounds because it's very unhealthy and you have to start. Nobody says, oh, I'm an eating type of person. You're destroying my identity. Without two steaks a day, it's just not me. How dare you speak like that to me? How dare you judge me? We hopefully we don't say that. And and I remember I, I I once told my wife jokingly that if you you should you should always take a doctor who's heavy set because he can never tell you to go on a diet. <laughs> so many years ago, I had a doctor who was very heavy set. He's actually a very good doctor, very confident. And then at the end, he says, you know, you need to lose X amount of pounds. So I wanted to say, look who's talking. <laughs> but then but I said to myself, that's stupid because he's sincere. So I don't know why he doesn't take his musa, but, but you know, at the end of the day, so nobody, nobody feels, but once we brand a person, I am a this or that, no, it, it doesn't, it's not the identity of the person. So yes, a person who is really, can only, can only be aroused by one or two, it's, 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 it creates a big challenge. But I think if our children grow up with an, a healthy understanding that sexuality is a very powerful, a very powerful driving force. It tends to become focused on different things and different people, and it can change. It doesn't become an identity. It's the same thing is true. What happens if a person is attracted to someone who's not Jewish? Intensely attracted. All the literature 200 years ago was about a, 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 a Jewish boy who was attracted, powerfully attracted. They had the same attitude. This is my life. There's no life without her or without him, and I can't. Uh, so the first thing is, it's not life. It's a very powerful force, and I have to recognize it. But it's, it divorce it from defining yourself. Uh, if, we, if we understand our bodies as being an extension of ourselves, not ourself, it already sets it different. And, and if a person, and, 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 and if we're willing to understand that an attraction is not a box, that that's who we must be, it's much easier to work. You know, it's, it's something when you'll, you'll get married, you'll have kids, you'll, you'll, you know, there'll be a lot of teenagers that are wonderful creations, but you'll, you'll, you know, there'll be many challenges. But I think in terms of that, I think these are two, two areas that we have to change the mindset and the understanding. What would be your response to someone who says they can't believe in God who would let a Holocaust happen that led to the deaths of so many innocent lives? I was at a funeral many years ago um, of, it was an extraordinary fine woman, extraordinary fine woman, not, not observant, but very good people, really good people. 
she had two children. One was um, observant. He had become Baal Tshuva, and he was a, 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 a Shemot Torah. The other one was not the same. Kind of, I guess, was vaguely traditional of some sort. This woman was really an, an, an exemplary human being. She really was very fine and everything. At the age of 60, she had like a mini stroke or like a bunch of mini strokes. They discovered that she has some sort of genetic condition where the blood vessels in the brain become very thin. The synthetic, I don't know exactly what it was. They did what they could. She had another 10 years of good life. There were certain restrictions. And then, at, I think at the age of 70, there was a, it, whatever it burst, she, she had a very deep stroke and she was passed away shortly afterwards. The, both sons eulogized her. And the younger son said, this has totally destroyed my belief in Hashem. I believe that, you know, if I had any faith, this is gone. This is a senseless, meaningless um, event. And no God could, who's good could do this. That was the gist of his, of his eulogy. His older brother spoke, and he said, it's very painful and very difficult, but I am so grateful to Hashem that he gave me such a wonderful mother for 70 years. I mean, 70 years means the mother lived 10 years. And I'm doubly grateful for 10 years where I felt it was a gift every single day. The difference between looking, all the people that were killed in Shoah, how did they become alive? So if you look at life for granted, I'm alive because I'm alive. Now Hashem, so just like imagine somebody gave you a gift. Every year he would give you $100,000 to live on or, 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 or whatever sum. Then one year he says, you know what, I've decided I'm not giving anymore. It's difficult, it's devastating, I might wonder why not. But I can't say, how dare you do that? You can't just leave me high and dry. Well, hello, for 20 years I've been giving. Um, who gives life? A person wakes up in the morning and if he sincerely says, Alokai, Neshama Shinasata Bi, you gave me a soul. I may be perplexed. I should be perplexed why some people were killed. I may be extremely um, in agony, definitely so. But Hashem gave the lives, and, and, and I don't know. I don't know, and, and, and I, I can say I don't know. But to reverse it and to take a gift, so if you don't believe life is a gift, if the only thing Hashem does is kill people, then yeah, then you're right. But if Hashem gives life, He gave life. So, so He took it back when you didn't expect it, when it's difficult for you, you can certainly express the difficulty and the agony. But where's the Taina? Evidence from mass revelation has included an unbroken chain of oral and written Torah transmission. I've heard that there have been times in history when the chain of transmission may have been broken. How do we understand this issue? So, I mean, there is a very long and strong chain. We can pretty much map out. There were times that were stronger and weaker and so on. But I want to point out a different angle to it, to this, to this, um, the chain of tradition. If somebody were to be an anthropologist, nice Jewish boy is not an anthropologist, but let's say you were an anthropologist, and you went around studying Jewish communities worldwide, you walked into a German synagogue, classic German synagogue, took notes. You walked into a Hasidic table in Poland, you took notes. You walked into a modern Orthodox community in America, you took notes. You traveled to Yemen before the Houthis got there, and you observed a Yemenite community. You would conclude 100% that we're talking about five or six different religions that have nothing to do with each other. They sound so different, they look so different. Here, they're sitting on the floor, here they're sitting in these proper pews with very church-like music. Here they're running about all over the shtibel. Again, the shtibel comes in again. And no, red, no order and no, no rhyme or reason. Here it's got this modern look to it. And uh, everybody looks very contemporary and so on. And he would be right. There, there was no trapping that's similar. If a person were to take out a shulcharuch, 
every single place is following it exactly the same. Deshmonesre, across them. Everyone has 18 brachas, yes. Three brachas introductory, three afterwards. Almost word for the same. The middle brachas, some small minor changes that don't affect the content. Krishma, Geula Latfila, Talzant Filin. Everything that halacha matters is the same. How did it come that way? Yemen and Germany and England and America and Russia and Poland were isolated from each other. They were, f- and anything, the proof is that anything that's not halacha changed. It, 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 the, the Polish Hasidic marches sound like Polish stuff. The Yemenite stuff sounds Arab. The German stuff sounds real German. So yes, it, it, it cultures change and adapt. But halacha hasn't. The Shulchan is almost, the areas of difference are like third tiered. Minhagib that came in later in things that are not halacha. Just about. Every Sefer Torah is almost the same. And the letters that are different, there are no Sefer Torahs in the world that are different except there are nine letters that, that differ. None of them are important letters. They're all like the Vavs and the Yuds that the letter, it can be read with or without it. There's one other change, Ptsuodaka with a hey or with an Aleph, and one other one, Vayiu Vayia. That's it. So some, some scribes stuck in Yemen, there was a completely isolated community. A Chassidish place in Poland did their own things. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, communities, every single place. So to me, that's a much, it's a very powerful sense. I guess we must have kept it really well, that tradition. And there were times that it was weak, but it was never cut off. So there were times, there were lulls, there were high times and low times, but there was always something there. Do we have evidence for Kabbalah and mysticism dating back to Sinai? So the earliest, the earliest um, things that we have are really clear is Yecheskel. The prophet Ezekiel has a prophecy about seeing Hashem, the chariot, all of that. The meaning certainly is not literal. Whatever the meaning is, it's Kabbalah. It means it's, it's an understanding that uses physical worlds, words, to describe something that is beyond physicality. One, in, in the Gemara and Chagiga, we have a Mishnah and a Sugyas that speaks about two types of disciplines that should not be taught publicly, and one of them should not be taught at all, but just sort of given over by Remiza, Maise Merkava, Maise Bracious, which is based on Yecheskel. Remiza means hints, allusions. It says that the, this Maise Merkava, which is sort of the innermost understandings, should be conveyed only to people who can, on their own, get it. And when we, we give them the lead, they pick up on it. It requires a very fine sense of understanding. The reason is not as is stupidly understood, that you can create these amazing bombs and destroy the world with Kabbalah and so on and so forth. And that, that's, that's science fiction. The real reason is because it's very dangerous. When you start talking about Hashem's right and left, then I imagine it's right and left. That makes you not a Kabbalist, but a bona fide apicorus. Um, God's hand, God's outstretched hands, ten numbers, all of these have to be stripped of their physicality and understood as a concept. So it requires a person with a very fine sense of understanding to be able to get the idea from the words and leave the words behind. So, so those are our sources for, for knowing, for, for, for what we call Kabbalah. If we I'm going to have another five minutes. I, I have to get yeah. moving. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. I just, yeah. Uh, yeah. If we look at Talmudic texts as authoritative and a source of emet, Source of MS. How do we explain medical guidance provided in these sources that don't align with modern day science and medicine? So there are different um, opinions and understandings of it. The the one that I feel most comfortable with. Again, there are a few. There are two areas, broad areas. There's one halacha, 
which deals with making halachic um, criteria based on medical observation. So for that, I think it's, it's a given that the reality that appears to the naked eye as is, is the halachic reality. For instance, let's take something very simple. Um, today, we can take a, a microscope and look at a drop of quote-unquote clean water and discover a lot, a lot of creatures. Does that make it unfit to drink? The answer is no. When, when Allah talks about creatures, it's something that's visible to the eye. If a person looks at a Sefer Torah and, and it seems as if there's a line connecting two letters which invalidates the Sefer Torah, but you take a big magnifying glass and you see that it's not continuous the line, it's still possible, and vice versa. Then if the naked eye sees it being a part, even though with a magnifying glass you can see a smudge, it doesn't make a difference. So the things that halacha that's based on, it means the medical realities of those days were as observed by the naked eye and the normal person, without knowing more, even to this very day, that's the halachic definition of it. In terms of the other areas where, where um, Chazal speak about just medical cures, based on what I think the morale approach is, Chazal were not writing it to give us medical advice because that's not, the, that's not the purpose of the Talmud. They're trying to always express an idea through that. Why is, when they say that this is particularly good for the heart, they, they're referring to something different. They're referring to some quality that's important for your emotion, let's say, just grabbing something out of the air. And things like that. That's what morale, the morale tends to explain these things this way. My Mysorus is along those lines. There are people who differ and, and in, in, in both directions, and that's fine. Uh, you know, as long as the person is, is with his But my personal chinuch and, and what sits best with me is to ask myself the question the Gemara is so big, why do they toss in more than's necessary? It, it, imagine writing a shas like that by hand, which was, was done for hundreds of years. You want to make it as concise as possible. Tossing in wonderful things about medical conditions is, is, is taken away from it. So write a separate book about grandma's advice on, on medical issues. It, it, it's there because there's some meaning behind it. And the morale many times points it out, and, and it's fascinating. So it, it does in other areas, but it's, for me, that's that was my that's the way I, I uh, was let to understand it. Sits, it sits with me. Do we have any level of obligation to do our best to live in Israel? Is it significantly better to live in Israel? Do our mitzvahs count for more in Israel? So there, there are circus and exubis about the mile of living at Israel, um, about how important it is, how good it is, and so on, how enhanced it is. There are many, many milas, there are many ad advantages. In, in, it also helps you know Hebrew to live in Israel. Ma'alot. There are many positive spiritual aspects. I'm sure many of you have seen it's a very spiritual world in many ways. There are also many challenges. So I would say it's not a halacha. There are some people who feel that way. Again, I don't doubt my world, doubt my resource. So when we're weighing a place that has extraordinary and positive sides, but you have things that are really going to be very difficult so we tend to swing towards putting the basics in place. Can the person earn a living here, depending on what the skill set is, what his training is? Can a person fit in culturally? It's not only a place to live. It, you, have to, you have to integrate um, the people. It's got its own, its own peculiar realities. It, it, it's something that should be done with, with advice by somebody that you're very close to, who understands you and understands how challenging it could be, or or how or how f f productive it will be. So in the big picture, yes, 
Eretz Yisrael is a, is 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 a place that is considered to be a better place to live for its spiritual um, aspects, and many Gdolim push that because it's very spiritual. On the other hand, if a person can't get basics into place, then 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 everything spiritual will will, will suffer. So it's a it's a very specific decision and should be made in, in together with somebody who, who really gets you and can, and can advise you. Okay, I, I really think I have to go. Sorry, that's uh, it's been very special.